Support for this episode of Judaism Unbound comes from the Ashman Family JCC in Palo Alto, California, whose vision is to be the architects of the Jewish future. The Ashman Family JCC empowers you to experience Jewish paths toward a life of joy, purpose, and meaning through innovative Jewish learning and wellness programs, community building, and initiatives to develop the next generation of Jewish leaders. Learn more at www.paloaltojcc.org. This is Judaism Unbound, episode 265, High Voltage Judaism. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dan Liebenson. And I'm Lex Rofberg. And we are here in a kind of mid-series Dan and Lex conversation episode. Why? Because this week marks our five-year anniversary as a podcast. Judaism Unbound has been around for five years. And also that it's a year into the pandemic and Passover's coming up and we're in a series on the Bible and it feels kind of like we're in this biblical period where we had a major exodus a year ago. I actually want to talk about this a little bit in a little while, Lex, like we had the first Passover, you know, the Bible talks about the first Passover before the Israelites had even left Egypt and it's kind of chaotic and we're still going to sit down and have this Passover. We actually did that last year, more or less. And this year we're coming up to the second Passover of this era and that's a whole nother thing to talk about. So I'm excited to jump into that. Before we do, on the subject of Passover coming up, I just want to note that this podcast is coming out on Friday. If you're listening to this on Friday or Saturday, you can still sign up for a workshop that we're doing on rethinking Passover for this year and, and forever. It's called New Rules Passover, and you can find it just by going to the Jewish Live website, www.jewishlive.org, and you can click on the link there and uh, sign up. It's a one-day workshop, a one-day, three-hour workshop on Sunday. So if you're listening to this after Sunday morning, it's it's too late, but we'll, we'll catch you next year. Uh, also, for Passover content, you can check out www.plaguesproject.com. I'm not going to tell you a lot about that, but it's a lot of awesome videos talking about the plagues, and le- you can learn a lot and think a lot about the 10 plagues there. The last thing I want to say before we jump into our conversation is that we want to ask you for your financial support. We don't have a lot of external sources of revenue, and really it's our listeners that we count on to keep this whole process going. One way I want to throw out there to do that is a monthly donation. You can go to our website, www.judaismunbound.com slash donate, and sign up to give monthly. You could give $5 a month, something like that would be really, really helpful, and it's a way of us having stable income and it's a way of giving us a lot of relief and less stress. And I know you want that. So thank you for that Passover gift. And let's jump into our conversation, Lex. I I was really thinking about all of these things happening at once, you know, Passover and uh, our five-year anniversary and one year into the pandemic. And I'm really thinking about the second Passover in history, you know, or in mythology, at least. The, The idea that a year into this wandering in the wilderness, where, by the way, the land of Israel is much closer to Egypt than a year's walk. So already in that first Passover, one year into the wilderness wandering, I would imagine that the Jews are already feeling disappointment. You know, why aren't we there already? And that feels significant. And and we know, looking back, that not only are they going to have one Passover in the wilderness like that, but they're going to end up with you know, 38 or 39, I don't know if they got there before the last Passover, the 40 years or right after, but, you know, they had a lot more Passovers left. So I'm wondering what you're reflecting on these days. I'm doing what you do sometimes, and I'm, I'm imagining myself in this previous era of Judaism. You often flash us to like, oh, what if we were 
around right in right after the destruction of the temple and people were talking about like what is this new Judaism that's happening? Like, that's not really Judaism um, in describing what would become rabbinic Judaism. And I'm I'm thinking about the wandering period from the Torah that we're sort of drawing an ana- analogy to in our time. And I'm realizing, like, we take this 40-year period, which it, it was an outlier in Jewish experience in that that 40-year period of exile or wandering in the wilderness was followed by Sort of. I mean, this it's more complicated than this, but by a few centuries of not the same kind of wandering. Um, there actually was, in that case, a sense that it was kind of a blip, which we our, our approach to the pandemic is that it's not a blip. But at the same time, it wasn't really. Because what's wild is this 40-year period of time, even if it's mythical time, even if it didn't happen, that's the source of all of these Jewish holidays and rituals. Like, I'm imagining being somebody wandering in that wilderness and being like, okay, we're doing this now, but like when we get to this promised land that everybody seems to be talking about, we'll like do the things we were doing before or we'll finally be able to worship the way we want to, like bada bing, bada boom. Well, spoiler alert, actually we're going to mark a holiday, Sukkot, specifically about the wandering you're doing right now and the booths that you had to set up. Oh, and also we're going to have a holiday marking the Torah you received while wandering on this mountain called Shavuot. Oh, and also we're going to just look back on that period and it's going to make up the majority of the Torah cycle. The first two books get a lot of the attention, Genesis and Exodus. Actually, the first one and a half books get a lot of attention, Genesis and then like the departure from Egypt in the first half of Exodus. Three and a half books are going to be that wandering around, and that's going to make up three and a half out of five, you know, seven-tenths of the fraction of the year, and we're going to talk about that every week in the Torah portion for thousands of years afterwards. It's not a blip. It's literally Mm -hmm. the fabric of everything, this 40-year period of seeming transition or seeming period between periods. But that's actually where we draw everything from. And I think that that same thing is already happening with the pandemic and is going to happen. I think in 100 years, truly, I I, I I mean, assuming we haven't lost humanity to climate change, but like I think to the extent we're around in 100 years – People will be looking back at this moment and and still exploring like, oh, what happened here that actually was a fundamental change to our world? What observances do we have? What societal communities have emerged? What have we done? And that's not just Jewish, by the way, but it's also going to be Jewish. Like, I think that this period so clearly is parallel to that wandering and given that, it would be really silly of us to assume that when we're done with this pandemic and we're able to interact with the world in the ways we used to, that it's all just going to return. Because it didn't, in that after that wandering period, even as we sort of did have a, a little bit of stability for a little while with those kingdoms that would arise, etc. Or that we would want it to return. You yeah, know, that's the thing. I mean, Obviously, some of these metaphors, you know, have their limits and, uh, you know, I don't necessarily want to compare the Jewish community or Jewish life as it was before the pandemic to slavery in Egypt. And yet there's this recurring motif in the stories that is seen very negatively by the Torah that the people want to go back to Egypt, right? That this wandering period is so hard that the people are saying, I wish I could just go back to the way things were before. And I was actually listening to some really interesting conversation recently among some Jewish professionals who talked about, look, there were, and it was an interesting use of language, there were comorbidities 
that the Jewish world had before COVID. That if you think about which Jewish organizations are vulnerable to COVID, it's in a way similar to which kind of people are most vulnerable to COVID. It's people who have other diseases. And it's not so simple to say that we want to go back from COVID just to that previous time when we actually weren't doing all that well. So especially reflecting on the four years, you know, here in Judaism Unbound before COVID, and then thinking about the last year, what have we experienced over this past year that's really, really good? You know, and that really represents something that either itself could be the seed of a future of Judaism or Jewish life, or at the very least that we will kind of look back on for the rest of Jewish history, marking those times and saying, you know, in the same way that, yeah, we did have a hard time during this wilderness period. And that's why we celebrate Sukkot to remind ourselves of the fragility of that time, et cetera. But now on the other end of it, we actually got to a really good place that we wouldn't have gotten otherwise. And so what are we kind of experiencing now that's going to be better? And I'll just share one thing. We had a Purim gathering a few weeks ago. And there were about 400 people there, which was extraordinary. And maybe you want to talk some about that. I, I want to talk about sort of the numbers of people coming to things. But the thing that really struck me the most was a person who was from Brazil, I believe, and was at our Purim gathering. And this person wrote something along the lines of this in the chat. They said, tonight makes me happy in a certain way that COVID has happened. Because if it weren't for COVID, I wouldn't have been able to have an evening like this. My takeaway from that comment was, this is not because of COVID. In other words, this might have happened because of COVID. It might not have. I mean, we might have done it anyway because we were trending in that direction already. But I walked away with that resolve to say, we will always do holiday gatherings like this, not only because of COVID. I don't want somebody to be grateful for COVID. I want somebody to be maybe grateful in a certain backward looking way to say COVID got something to happen, which now will happen forevermore, regardless of COVID. What's interesting is that kind of language is another parallel of how we talk about Jewish traumas of the past. Like you hear rabbis, maybe less with the with the slavery in Egypt. I, I don't hear as many people saying like, it's good we were slaves in Egypt because we got to leave and then we have stories out of that. You People could make that argument, by the way, like, oh, if we weren't slaves in Egypt, like we wouldn't have the Exodus story, like that would be a bummer, right? Um, by the way, I don't think we were slaves in Egypt, so I actually don't think that's true. I think it's a myth, mythological narrative. Um, we've talked with people who disagree with me, including scholars. That's okay. But like, I I think that people do do that with the destruction of the temple. They say, ah, not only is it okay, it's good. I, I'm, I'm speaking from others' perspective that I've heard. I'm quoting here. This is not my take. Uh, oh, I'm very glad that the temples were destroyed because if they hadn't been, you know, rabbinic Judaism as we understand it would not have emerged. Now, first off, similar to what you said with our Purim thing, right? We might have done Purim live anyway. I actually am not sure that's true. I think rabbinic yeah. Judaism may have evolved if the Second Temple wasn't destroyed. I think it might have been slower. It, it already was pretty slow. It took many hundreds of years for rabbinic Judaism to establish itself. I will say about us and Purim live, drawing on, ah, it might have been slower. I think we might have been trending in that direction, as you mentioned. If so, it still wouldn't have been as good. Like, 
there's something about this year that even for those of us like you, Dan, like me, Lex, who have been doing digital stuff for a while, there's a way in which we leveled up quicker. And it's not that I'm here to say like, ah, we nailed everything on Purim. It was perfect. I do think it was very awesome. But there were skills that we gained this year. Live streaming at this point is something we do very quickly and without having to think about it very much. Um, we didn't use breakout rooms that much in this, but we could have. Um, we, you know, little things like virtual backgrounds and how to best mobilize the chat and how to do transitions. Like these are all things that we had not done almost at all a year ago, even as we had done it a little bit. And we leveled up quicker. To me, that's similar to what happens when a temple is destroyed or when you leave Egypt. Like, yeah, society was going a certain way. There were already synagogue structures emerging before the temple existed that could have eventually turned into synagogues that we later saw and could have turned into rabbinic Judaism. When the temple's destroyed and for a certain subset of people, it's just a necessity to think of something new, that accelerates things. Here we are, pandemic does that, and digital forms of Jewish experience rapidly accelerate. Now, my question to ask is what, like, what are the shifts that accelerated? Because I think they're, they're worth naming. And for one, we've talked about this many times at this point, but I really keep on wanting to name geography because you started that story by saying a person in Brazil hung out with us on Purim. And mm -hmm. that was free. Like, I mean, you didn't say that. That was free. That They didn't have to fly. We didn't have to fly. There was no logistical anything there. And one way to approach that would be to say, ah, geography has sort of collapsed and there is no geographic separation anymore. I actually more and more don't agree with that, although I sort of agree with it. But what I think is happening is there is a digital geography emerging. Mm -hmm. It's like an xy-axis of a graph has been collapsed into one point. It, it, it's as if like the globe, I mean, the globe's round, so the xy-axis doesn't fully work. But if you have a map and it collapses into one point such that every point on that map is now in the same place, something new emerges. But at the same time, I feel like that point has like a z-axis. It has like a, a vertical up and down, like out of the page, where not everybody, it's not like every digital space is connected to every other digital space. And there's actually sort of neighborhoods and people that we see in our digital spaces and other Jews doing other Jewish digital things that we probably don't see very much or at all. And I think that exploring what that means and how it's a new geography with new rules I think that's important to do because all of us experience this. There's still stratified, separate kinds of areas in everywhere from Jewbook, which is, you know, the, the, the landscape of Jewish Facebook groups, to we're starting to see this in places like Clubhouse, to all sorts of stuff. And basically, I want to stop and look at that because I will say that isn't quite what I thought was happening before this. Like, I, I did understand that XY axis collapsing into a point thing such that a person in Brazil or anywhere could hang out with us on Purim, I hadn't imagined to the extent I think I now do how we can actually simulate online the synagogue we won't set foot in, the neighborhood we won't set foot in, the, the, that kind of thing that exists in our jokes, but in reality. When you say that, do you mean that in this online space that is now there, this new city that you know, we talked about 
seeing cyberspace as a city, as like a, Jew, a, a city that a lot that all the Jews have moved to. And you're saying now within that city, there are a number of different spaces that some people don't want to go to this one and some people don't want to go to this one, right? Like it's... it's yeah, it's... We truly, in in the positive, in the negative, in the neutral ways, have have like replicated a lot of what we have had in offline cities, Jewish communities, etc. And I say that with some happiness because for years I've called for, ah, we need to be looking at the digital world as a, as a Jewish city, as a Jewish community and saying, ah, how many synagogues would we want in a, in a city that serves 13 million Jews, which is to say and, all And the them. answer is not one. Right. The answer is not one at all. And it's not even 10 probably. It's probably many more than that. But is it the number that we have offline, because that's what I've been seeing, right? Like, like we've seen every single community offline has sort of create a digital space for their people to have services. JCCs have done that, you know, like everybody's done that. And there's a part of me that's like not so sure of myself anymore because we it's not just that we're trying to achieve everything that we had before in a new space. It's that we want to have new thriving ways of being in Jewish community. Now, I, I'm, not, I'm not pessimistic about that. That's also happening. And it shows in a thing like Purim Live, where we've got 400 people in that space and 600 who signed up. Um, I say that not because I think that counts, but like some of those people probably watched afterwards, because that's another thing. Like time gets stretched and changed when every Jewish event is not is record or not every, but when lots of Jewish events are recorded and accessible afterwards. So I, yeah, I don't have a, I don't have a so what there, but it's interesting to me the geography of Jewish life that we're seeing digitally, because at the same time, it is the case that I, I feel like I'm in community. I'm in a neighborhood with people, you know, across the United States and in some cases around the world. And there are people who like, are in my literal geographic location of Providence, who are inhabiting digital Jewish spaces, who I feel like are not in my neighborhood in most senses online. And I'm not saying that with like a diagnosis of that's a sickness or like that's a cure to something in either direction. It's just interesting to me because it points us towards a new understanding of what geography is and what community is that would be useful for us to figure out. I'm thinking again a little bit about the wilderness story and the idea that we have the 12 tribes of Israel in the wilderness. And then we know from later there's this idea that 10 of the tribes got lost. Now, in a sense, you could say these are totally disconnected stories. They happen many hundreds of years apart. But I'm taking the wandering in the wilderness story from the book of Exodus as metaphor, as uh, non-historical. And I think that the real history has to do with the destruction of the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 BCE. And the 10 lost tribes come from there, right? The story is that the northern kingdom of Israel is destroyed. There were 10 tribes that were part of the northern kingdom. There were only two tribes that were part of the southern kingdom. And the 10 tribes of the northern kingdom are exiled to Assyria and just kind of wander off and get lost. You know, it's one of those stories where now a lot of the research 
suggest that the 10 lost tribes actually weren't lost at all. Some of the people from the Northern Kingdom, particularly maybe certain elites, and those were the people who tended to write stuff, so maybe that's why we don't know the answer until archaeology sort of found it, but the vast majority of the people from the Northern Kingdom came as refugees to the Southern Kingdom. The population of Jerusalem explodes right after the destruction of the Northern Kingdom, and so where did all these people come from? Obviously, they came from the Northern Kingdom. The people weren't lost. It wasn't the 10 lost groups of people, it was the 10 lost names of tribes, right? And that there was a certain kind of collapsing into a single identity as, at that time, Judeans, now Jews. Now, that doesn't mean that there was only one kind of Judaism at that point. There were probably multiple kinds of Judaism, or we know that they were. But the point is that the old areas of division were not the new areas of division. And and I wonder if we're going to see that in the online space. Like, I don't think that it's necessarily a bad thing. In fact, I don't think it is a bad thing at all that there wouldn't be only one synagogue in the online Jewish city, right? But what's interesting to ask is whether the divisions among the organizations are going to be the same divisions as the divisions that existed before online space became dominant or, you know, before the pandemic. And that that has yet to be, that is a story that is yet to be told. But the other interesting thing is now those divisions don't have to have much to do with geography. That's what I find really interesting, that that we can have a Purim event where this person from Brazil can attend, and that person would have been stuck. And I don't mean that, that things in Brazil are negative. I just mean that that person would have only had the choices that are available in their geography, whereas now people have choices that don't have anything to do with geography. Now, is that a positive or a negative? I mean, you could see it as both, right? It's a positive in the sense that people have more options. You could see it as a negative, and I think a lot of local communities do and will even more so as they struggle see it as a negative because they can't rely on the support of the people who happen to live in their city anymore. And that is going to be disruptive and of concern to them. And I just want to say one last thing about Purim, which I thought was really interesting, is that one way that we have been seeing sort of new organizations cropping up over time has been very, I don't know what we call it exactly, like issue-oriented or identity-oriented. So there's a LGBTQ plus organization, there's a Jews of Color organization, right? And what I, what I found exciting about Purim Live was that a lot of people from all those different identities were there. And so, like, I'm wondering whether there's an opportunity in the digital space to have both of those things, right? To have smaller organizations that are really for people with a very particular set of interests or identities that they really want to emphasize, and also spaces that allow people to be part of it across a number of different categories that might ordinarily not establish an organization together. Let's do more with the new divisions online. I really agree. I I think that there's misunderstandings and there's a mixture of misunderstandings and good understandings of what is happening online. I think about stratifications that are happening along lines of belief. So let's let's take political questions of Israel-Palestine or let's take like denominational approaches to Judaism. Like it is true on, say, the issue of Israel-Palestine there are Jewish spaces that have emerged online for anti-Zionists, for liberal Zionists, for mainline Zionists, for like there, there are all sorts of different groups that have emerged. From my vantage point, mostly 
not with each other. Mostly it's not like let's have a discussion group with the full spectrum of beliefs on Israel-Palestine. It's mostly like here's a set of people who have a certain approach and are talking with each other about that, advocating around that, etc. What I would argue though is there is a way in which all of those people, the anti-Zionists, the traditional Zionists, the whatever set of people, all of them are practicing a similar Judaism for those who are doing it from like a Jewish space. Like they're all practicing Judaism through advocacy or conversation about the issue of Israel-Palestine. That's not everybody. That is one category or division, I would argue, of contemporary Jewish practice, especially digitally. You could put next to that what I'll term, you know, I don't know, religion. I mean this in quotes. I want religion to mean expansive things, but like religious Judaism in quotes. Like the the approaches of Reform Judaism, Conservative Judaism. I'm actually putting all of those together. But like mm. people who are looking to sort of practice religious Judaism, to go to synagogue services online, to to mark holidays online. So so we are connected to this, adjacent to this, or part of it sometimes. Like. People who are looking for what we think of usually as, in quotes, religious Judaism. And what's important about that is I am grouping all of those denominations together. I actually think that Mm -hmm. the people doing that from a reform lens, the people doing that from a conservative lens, the people doing that from a modern orthodox lens, like those people are looking for a similar Jewish thing and finding it with people online. Cool. Third category I would draw out is people... Roughly, I'm going to call them like learners. So whatever their background, it often doesn't matter. Like they're they're looking to talk about, learn about, geek out about Jewish stuff. And there's a bazillion spaces for them to do this in live classes, in asynchronous Facebook groups, on Clubhouse, in audio conversations, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. These are people who often they'll tell you, I have these conversations all the time. They're like, I don't really know. I don't know exactly what I'd call myself Jewishly, but like I, I love, I love learning about this stuff and geeking out about like nitty gritty stuff related to holidays or the Talmud or whatever. And like to me, that's a third group. Some of those people don't go to services regularly online or offline, but they're really excited about those learning spaces. So, in my view, that's like a new set of divisions that you're talking about. And I don't mean that in the negative sense, like, oh, why can't we share spaces? Like, there are people who are drawn to advocacy or political stuff through their Jewish muscles or Jewish heart. I don't know. There are people, and of course, people straddle these groups. Of course, it's not so simple. But there's a second group that is drawn to, like, religious experience, holidays, prayer, whatever. There's a third group drawn to learning, discussion, and I think that matters. I don't think it's just like a meaningless thing. I think we should understand people who are reformed, conservative, or like all of those things who are looking for religious experience online. We should be understanding that they're doing a similar thing in the way, ironically enough, that we have thought about like, ah, conservative Jews in the past are doing a similar thing versus reformed Jews are doing a different thing versus orthodox Jews. Like that's actually different styles of Jewish practice that are that are important enough to think of them like we have thought about denominations. But uh, to be clear, I'm not saying there's going to be emerging. I'm not saying mm-hmm. like descriptively it is the case that reform conservative orthodox Jews are going to like put aside their whatevers and like have just religious space. I, I don't think that. I think there's all sorts of reasons that won't happen and, and why the institutions of those movements don't want that to happen. But 
I think descriptively, it is the case that people from each of those worlds that are looking online to have experiences from those worlds are doing a, a more similar thing to each other than they are fellow Reformed Jews who are looking for political stuff online that's Jewish. Yeah, no, that's fair. That's fair. I also think there will be a merging uh, of the liberal Jewish denominations over time because I, I think that the the group that once that religious stuff, like you're saying, is not large enough to sustain so many different uh, denominations and that they actually are similar enough to each other that they will find common cause. And, you know, yeah, long term, but yeah. I, I'm particularly curious about the conservative movement because the conservative movement has been largely unable to hold some of the lines that it held pre-COVID in terms of the use of electronics on Shabbat and that kind of thing. And it's just hard to believe that for a lot of people, they're not going to, you know, kind of come back after COVID and say, oh, that was just a special COVID dispensation. You know, there, there's going to be a lot of people that say, like, I really liked it better during the wandering in the wilderness than before. Um, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about offline because I've been thinking a lot about this lately, not only offline, but also the relationship between offline and online. And, you know, a lot of people will be critical of the online stuff and say that there's certain things that you just can't do online. You can't hug a person. You can't give their the same level of, let's say, pastoral care or um, closeness. Now, I think that that's somewhat true. I also think it'll be less true as certain new technologies develop. But let's assume for the sake of discussion that it is true. What I've been thinking about lately as an analogy is how the world of yoga operates. My basic understanding is that there are these yoga studios. They're basically, they could be a business. They could, you know, in our case, we wouldn't want to be a business probably, but it could be a nonprofit. But the point is, is that the yoga studio is kind of like a platform that allows these independent or quasi-independent yoga instructors to teach yoga classes and have a small group of people that are very connected to that teacher in some cases. In other cases, it's people that are really just connected to yoga and they want to come no matter who the teacher is, if the time fits in for them. And so there are ways to kind of have an economy of scale. So it's not just people teaching yoga in their own homes, although I imagine that that happens too, to some extent. And I'm just thinking like, what would it look like if Judaism ended up looking that way? What if it's always in groups of 20 or less, which by the way, more or less is the way that Judaism was practiced before the pandemic. It was just that that was seen as disappointing. But what <laughs> if you imagined embracing the that sort of small world and saying, okay, we're gonna just create large numbers of ways to be Jewish in small groups. And those small groups are gonna be led not by a rabbi, but by somebody who is capable of leading a small group like that. And we're gonna have an interview in a few weeks that gets a little bit at, at some of these possibilities. Uh, so I don't wanna overly um, spoil it, but I, I've been thinking a lot about an idea that there would just be this whole network of kind of small scale Jewish living. And that provides a new and an additional value to the online space, right? I think that it potentially could be seen as a place where the leaders or whatever we want to call them, the organizers, the facilitators of such small group Judaism can connect with one another to share ideas, to share what they're doing, to share what's working and to learn. 
And people have talked for many years about, you know, how could liberal Judaism do Chabad and et cetera. And they've tended to imagine that that means that liberal rabbis are going to be going around to all kinds of cities, opening up little Chabad-like houses. And nobody can ever get their mind around that because the the salary wouldn't be able to be high enough. Like you couldn't, Chabad doesn't raise enough money to pay Chabad rabbis the kind of salary that a liberal rabbi expects and rightly expects, arguably. The only way that this would work is the way that yoga works is that most people who are yoga instructors are not doing that as like a full-time profession where they're, and certainly not where they're making a six-figure salary. And they didn't yeah. go to school for five years in order to, you know, it's it's okay. It's, it's whatever the pieces are that go into all that. It doesn't happen in the world of yoga. And it would be interesting to wonder what it would look like if that didn't happen in the world of liberal Judaism. Yeah. So uh, first off, I certainly don't think that the expectation around what liberal rabbis or non-Orthodox, what many rabbis think is and non-rabbis in the Jewish community think is reasonable. I, I think we need to revisit that in all sorts of ways. And I think it's a huge problem, actually, that very fact that by definition, the way that communities have set themselves up, it means that rabbis are part of a class that is distant from a lot of the people that they theoretically should be working with, um, mm. people who mm. are lower class. So that's a whole other thing. But I, So that's number one. I, I, I'm with you that that's the case that people have tried to set up these Chabad-like things for non-Orthodox rabbis to do whatever, I would rethink it in a lot of ways. But I want to take what you just said and tie it, I think, to the back to the online. You know, we're doing the offline online dance here. And I heard something really interesting from a past guest of ours, Shai Held, where he was talking about what he termed low-voltage and high-voltage Jewish experiences. And he said something interesting, which helped me understand my differences from him, to be totally honest, which I've reflected on a lot because he's somebody whose theology I deeply respect, who we've had on our show, and who I just like actually totally see the world differently from in a lot of ways. So he said, I, Shai Held, am kind of a low voltage Jewish experience guy. What he means by that is he's not looking for necessarily in his ritualized calendar of Jewish stuff to have experiences that just like throw them into a transcendent realm and like soar to the heights. I will say directly, I am looking for that. I am not interested personally in a weekly experience of Shabbat services where the goal is low voltage. I'm not. I recognize descriptively there are a lot of people for whom going to synagogue or whatever else, it's not about soaring to the heights and feeling God or feeling like connected in a deep sense to the universe. Like, I get that. But I don't want to speak for like generational lines too much. But I do think that for me, having grown up in a world for better and worse, really a lot of both, where I can turn on the TV and I can choose from a huge set of options and find like my perfect show or whatever. At any given moment, I can turn on the TV and expect that there is like an old movie I really love on or a sporting event I really want to watch or it's like I have a high expectation for like what I can access at any given time. Once again, often for worse in a capitalist world. But I think that that has had a deep impact on me. And it means that I'm not just like looking for a Jewish space that's like nice or good or like fine repeatedly. And over the course of that repeated experience builds something for me. 
I really am looking for that high voltage experience. What's interesting is the high voltage experience is easier to do online than the low voltage experience, which is counterintuitive because high voltage you think is like so intense and you have to create some kind of soaring thing. I think that when you strive for that online, that you can do in one night and then people don't, it's not about building a long-term anything. It's a high mm-hmm. voltage, it's like you mm-hmm. get an electric shock. Like mm-hmm. that is something in a Purim Live we can pull off. If you and I sat down and we're like, how do we create a continuous kind of low voltage connection among a community of people? How do we have that digital space? How do we really do that right? I, I think we could do it, but I think it would be really hard and we would have to basically... We'd have to structure a lot of things about what we do differently to really do that effectively because we'd have to devote a lot of time there that we couldn't be serving the high voltage experiences with. So Mm. I'm curious how that high voltage versus low voltage issue is manifesting here because I actually think there's really good high voltage stuff happening. I think like – I now expect for almost any holiday, besides our own stuff, which I think is good, I like expect that I'm going to wake up a week before Shavuot and there's going to be 14 very cool transcendent Shavuot things with amazing speakers from around the world. And some will be three hours and some will be 24 hours like us. I expect that will be true. Uh And so at that point, why, like for me, a high voltage kind of person, like why, and I don't mean this disrespectfully, like why would I go to the community that's just like looking to do something nice, that's like good, but not really sitting there like, how are we going to have an absolutely energized, like thriving room that is that is among the greatest opportunities on the planet somebody could access this day? Like that's what I want to go to and, I, and I'm able to in an online universe. I definitely feel like I am much more the low voltage but a different low voltage than Shai held once, which I in- interpret to mean that he really appreciates this kind of, you know, regular repeating uh, Shabbat services and, you know, can get something out of kind of the, the like you said, like the low voltage of this repeating type of experience. Or, or maybe it's just like ongoing learning or whatever it might be. I don't want to speak for him in terms of exactly what that counts as. For me, it's actually things like there's a particular podcast, for example, on the Bible series for Hebrew speakers out there of whom, you know, there probably aren't that many of our listeners, but there's an Israeli podcast that I listen to called Asim Tanakh. It means like doing Bible. And it's like, I dream to make this podcast in English one day. It's uh, it's a Bible podcast, you know, but like modern biblical scholarship for lay people. It comes out every two weeks and I'm so excited when it comes out. I, I'm like, I like drop everything and listen to it. And I kind of wish that there was a podcast like that every day, not that specific podcast. I just mean like if I had one podcast per day that I listened to and I knew that every day in the week I would get like a little bit of a bolt, mm-hmm. um, whatever the right terminology is. It's interesting because both the high voltage and the low voltage, I think, at least the kind of low voltage that I'm talking about, are achievable better for a lot of us online. Why? Because we might not live, you might, you, high voltage, Lex, may not live in a geography, in a physical geography, where you can really get the high voltage experience locally. And there may not be any geography that provides my kind of low voltage experience on a regular basis. So, so it's not necessarily the high voltage versus low voltage argues for digital versus in person. It's that I think that potentially 
both are well served in the digital space and also sometimes in the in the in-person space but but i for me it's it's really thinking about i mean i'll tell you like when we started this podcast 5 years ago i don't know that i could have told you what i think it's like it's like all about recently i've been drawing a venn diagram with three circles one circle is the digital revolution one circle is the third era of Judaism, right? The post-rabbinic, the next era of Judaism. And the third circle is the empowerment of regular Jews, as opposed to rabbis or other authorized players. And it's in the overlap of those three circles that I find my passion and I, I think our mission. The old version of Judaism isn't working for most Jews. We need a new version of Judaism. According to Yitz Greenberg, and I agree, that new version of Judaism will be brought about by regular Jews. And the missing piece, I think, for Yitz Greenberg, you know, 40 years ago or whenever he initially put this idea out there, I think the missing piece was the digital revolution. Like there wasn't the real capacity to fully empower regular Jews until some of the digital tools that we're talking about came to be, both in terms of helping people learn, but also helping people uh, find each other and create and have those high voltage and low voltage experiences. And so it feels to me like it's those three put together that is both the maximalization in a way of the threat to second era Judaism, right? Because the digital revolution allows me to not have to go to my synagogue that's boring to me and if I can find something more exciting, high voltage online, but it's also the solution. And that's been very exciting to me to, to sort of put those pieces together in the last few months. What you just described is how the digital world throws open the options. There's a relationship here that I, I'm gonna try to think through out loud. The high voltage stuff, I'm thinking about synagogue communities, which I think do a lot of important things. In order for a synagogue community to do its mission properly, at least how most conceptualize their mission, which is to build a kind of community, even if not everybody is accessing that community all the time, they kind of have to do something a lot. You have to have Shabbat services every week. You have to have, you know, for each of the holidays, the your synagogue's version of those holidays. Like, you need to create that rhythmic repetition because otherwise you can't do the thing of community building. Community building is hard work and it involves showing up regularly as whether you're the leader or if you're a participant, like you have to, you have to provide that regularly. Because if you go, if you were an offline community and you decided up for a few months, we're not going to do anything like that. I don't know if people will not come back or if they'll find something else, but like, even if they do come back, something is missing if you have such a gap. Now, when you have to do something for every holiday and for every Shabbat, by definition, even if you're super staffed, let's say you have like the biggest staff of any synagogues in the country, you've got multiple rabbis and cantors, you've got a whole slate of like Jewish educators and and youth specialists, whatever, you've got Hebrew school teachers, like even if you have that, if you have to do something every week, plus, you know, you've got your classes that have to happen every week because you're trying to create low voltage micro communities, you can't, they can't be high voltage. You can't be trying to transcend and soar to God with your every single event. It's just not sustainable and possible. And so we've constructed a Jewish world, once again, with a lot of strengths to that Jewish world. 
around low voltage experiences because you've got limited staff in most situations and limited, even if you've got really involved lay leaders, limited capability to create like, wow, we're an organization that I think has done a good job. We're not running a Passover Seder this year. And we haven't led Passover Seders in past years. And that's a choice we can make because we're not trying, like if we were trying to create a low voltage recurring kind of community, like to not have Passover would be a terrible decision because Passover is for many people, their biggest Jewish holiday. For others, it's, you know, top three. And so you have, of course you have a Passover that you probably have multiple Passover Seders. You probably have, you know, different options for your community if you're able to. We don't do that. Now, we do other Passover things, but we're able to say like, oh, no, we're not going to do that because we're only going to create a holiday experience that's like live if we feel like it can be that high voltage electric experience. I'll, I'll be frank. Another side of it is I think I'll speak for me. I like my own Seder with my family and like I think you do. And like we want to be doing that. Um, and so we just haven't we haven't had one. And Maybe people have been curious why. Like, that's kind of why. We, we haven't wanted to, and we really want to do it right if we do it. And I think that's a product, once again, of the digital world. Because in the digital world, if we don't do that, who? I mean, who cares, right? Like, I mean, look, I think we would do it well. But the people who might look to us for a Passover Seder, we know in our neighborhood, in our digital space, there's abundant, wonderful Seders that people can check out if we don't do it. Now, if you're in an offline community with only a couple synagogues and they and like let's say you're the only reform synagogue or you're the only conservative synagogue, if you don't do a Passover Seder, it feels like oh my gosh, a bunch of people like don't have the ability to access this anymore. It's incumbent upon us to think about the strengths of a world where you can just not do stuff and focus on other stuff. And that's what the digital world is. We can create a Purim gathering that I do think was really special. And we've gotten feedback from people who came that it was really special. And then you can say, oh, we're going to take a little bit off. <laughs> not, not that we're not working, but like we're going to pivot to other things. And that's a product of the high voltage versus low voltage situation. Yeah. And I would also say that I'm a bit of a Passover Seder skeptic. Uh, not that I don't do it. I actually do do a Passover Seder with my family. And like you say, I really enjoy it and I wouldn't want to not do it. But the other reason is that I, I kind of feel like the Passover Seder's gone off the rails and I haven't figured out how to fix it yet or how to do something else. So I'm just kind of skipping that. But I will say, by the way, that um, we have uh, we, we did this year invite, uh, I don't want to take too much credit for this. There was another person, a really great Jewish educator named Gabe Miner, and he created something called the Virtual Seder last year, which was a YouTube set of very, very short videos going through the Seder with interesting ideas. And we invited him to bring that on to the Jewish Live website this year to try to get more people to find out about it. So uh, if you do want to see a little bit of a something that we worked on somewhat, it's at www.virtualseder.org. So anyway, um, I guess, Lexa, the thing that I just want to say, uh, you know, uh, just in closing, maybe, is that the world that you paint, which I very much embrace, the challenge of it has to do with everybody getting paid. You know, it has mm -hmm. to do with how do we generate the financial capacity to create all this stuff when there isn't a single very devoted or somehow very sense of obligation community to fund it. I, I think so much, like there's so many times that I, I've thought back to our conversation many years ago. I mean, it was in our first year with uh, Dan Ain. And 
he was talking about what I would call, you know, in your language, high voltage Jewish experiences. And it was almost like he was into this idea of like a religious revival meeting. And I said to him, like, this sounds like how Bruce Springsteen talks about his concerts. And he said, you know, and the difference is that Bruce doesn't have to play to the same crowd every night. You could imagine Dan Ain creating this weekly revival experience online and different people would come each week because it's a high voltage experience and they don't need to have it every week. But the question is, are they going to pay for it? And are they going to pay enough for it that makes it possible for Dan to live his life and for the technology to be paid for and, and everything? Or maybe the answer isn't about Dan because maybe Dan himself you know, as a rabbi, and that was with a certain set of expectations about how much a rabbi should earn, et cetera, et cetera. And that's what's going to change. And so in the future, a future version of Dan, who maybe wasn't a rabbi and felt like they have another job and they just do this on the side or, or whatever, could actually do it in a financially sustainable way. But one of the things that I really struggle with is this question about, like, as we disaggregate Judaism I actually don't mind the idea that there isn't a single community. Some people lament that there isn't a single community in terms of things like, you know, peoplehood and mutual care for one another. I, I think that will come. It's not that I don't care about those things. It's that I think that those things will come naturally in, in a new way. But as somebody who thinks about what it takes to keep an organization going, I really feel like the nut that we haven't yet cracked is this way of figuring out how we're going to fund it in light of the fact that the organizations that we've inherited are funded through this membership model where people have to pay thousands and thousands of dollars for dues or some other kind of fundraising model like federations have where there's a substantial amount of social pressure. We don't want either of those things. They weren't working before COVID. So the answer is not that those are great and we have to stick to those. Those are failing as well. The question is just, are we going to find a way to do it in this new way? First off, I don't think it's sustainable to pay people what we've been paying them in Jewish life generally. Offline, like if there were no online, I don't think that would be sustainable. And I think like I hinted at before, the, the kinds of expectations that creates around Jewish community and the class consciousness we do and don't have is serious. But with Sean Leisha and his work on Karaites, he has done an absolutely amazing amount of work on this. He, he's a lawyer. Like he, he, his job is not to run Karaite organizations. He does other things with his nine to five and probably much more than nine to five job. And he has taken this on because from the bottom of his heart, he cares about it. And this is important too. He has the ability to, he has the ability to have that time in his life and not everybody has that ability. So A, we should like try to create a world where people have the ability to to throw themselves into passions and not just upper class people. So that's like a non-Jewish, that's an everybody project. But even besides that, I think the reality of our digital world and of our future offline and on is that people are going to need to do things because they have a deep love and passion for it to some extent. And, and so that's hard because that boxes some people out. But I also think that when people who care deeply to the bottom of their souls about something lead stuff, it tends to be good. Like mm -hmm. when people, when people's energy and passion just soaks through the screen so that you have to feel it, or by the way, soaks through the microphone in an offline space and you can feel it in the pews or whatever, that's a good thing. 
I look at this reality of, oh, you're only going to lead something if you're called to do it so much that you'll do it for no money or for less money. I see that as having a, a barrel of problems related to who could do that, but also being liberating and exciting because I, I see a lot of those people uh, often on the Jewish left doing a good job. And so my question is, have we drawn a set of lines around like, ah, staff members who are paid well and who have been trained to learn things at a deep level, they're sort of by definition going to do better stuff. And so we should create communities where we can have such people and then they lead the stuff. Like, is that actually not true? Yeah, I agree with that. I think there's a lot of challenges, uh, particularly, I think, for those of us who are passionate about Judaism and want that to be our full-time job. You know, I think that mm -hmm. that's a, a challenge for people. And um, I think about what we've created over the last year and how it's actually proven that you can create a ton of stuff working full-time, meaning that if you were working part-time, you could also create a large amount of stuff. And, you know, I kind of think about that and imagine like, yeah, I could be Sean Leisha, right? I could, I'm a lawyer. I could go get a law job and, um, you know, do some of this on the side, but it's not what I want to do, right? You know, mm -hmm. and, and then the question becomes, you know, well, how can we imagine a future where people uh, are able to do that? So I think there's a, a lot to think about. And um, I think that's a good note to end on, you know, five years in, because I feel like whether it's one year into the pandemic or five years into this journey on Judaism Unbound, that that's actually closer to the beginning than to the end. And and I just think about how much I've learned and how much my thinking has changed over the last five years and then in an accelerated way over the last year. And I'm still understanding things in a new way every single day. And so the idea that we or anybody five years ago, 10 years ago, two years ago, should have submitted some major grant proposal that they figured out the future of the Jews, <laughs> you know, that, that would have been tragic. So, you know, at some point there's what's called in academia, the dissertation writing problem, you know, which is that you have to stop doing research and start writing the dissertation. But I'm not sure when that point comes. Yeah, um, that's an interesting point, the dissertation problem. I'll have to think more about that. So just to, to really close this out, I am going to mention a little image that we recently created, and it, it's also accessible as a video to mark this five-year moment. You can find it on our website at judaismunbound.com slash mosaic. It's also our cover photo on Facebook, although that's just a photo, not a, not a video. Um, so go to the website one. But we made this video and look, some of why we made that video is selfishness and ego. And I, and I want to be frank about that. Like we're an organization that's very proud after five years to have, we think, achieved some, some great things. Now, we really deeply see them as starting points. What Dan just said is so true. Like we see this five years as I'm going to use the analogy of like the Jubilee cycle in the Torah, which is 50 years or 49 years. Like it's the tiny beginning of what we think is generations long work that will continue way after us. But we're proud. And so we invite you to check out this mosaic because it, it includes all sorts of our guests, pictures of them. It includes programs we've done. It includes all sorts of things that, that Judaism Unbound has been up to over the past few years. And we hope that for those of you who have been along this journey for, I don't know, a few weeks, for a few months, or even for the whole five years, that something about you has shifted 
in a high voltage way. We have been striving in each of these podcasts to have a contained kind of high voltage experience that has the potential to unlock an entirely new approach to Jewish life for you and even for others because you could then go and interact with others. So we'd love to hear what those are. And we really mean it when we say at the end of every episode, which we've done for 265 straight times, we really mean what we say when we encourage you to be in touch with us. And so if you, especially, especially at this five-year point in looking at that mosaic and thinking about these years, have a thought, a question, an idea for what we could be Judaism Unbound in the future, please, please be in touch with us. And here are all the ways that you can do that. You can head to our Facebook page, Judaism Unbound. Our Twitter and Instagram are also at Judaism Unbound. You can head to our website, JudaismUnbound.com. You can email us at dan at JudaismUnbound.com or lex at JudaismUnbound.com. And of course, you can make a donation to us. And when you do so, you can put a little note about what has resonated for you over these years. Um, you can do that at JudaismUnbound.com slash donate, either as a one-time gift or as Dan said at the top, as a monthly recurring donation, which we so deeply appreciate. So thank you so much for listening to this episode. Thank you for whatever number of other episodes from zero to 264 uh, that you've listened to in the past. And with that, this has been Five Years of Judaism Unbound. <laughs>